Well, it, it's been an interesting week. Uh, for many of you, it was a week filled with uh, difficulties and struggles. Maybe you had water in your basement. Maybe you had other things that popped up along the way. Maybe you just had a hard time getting around to the places that you needed to go. Uh, but I was blessed this week to hear stories of people serving their brothers and sisters, serving their neighbors, serving people within the church and outside of the church. Uh, when we had water coming in the children's wing, uh, there were those that dropped everything and came to help, and uh, it was just a wonderful picture of the church, of the body of Christ, being the body of Christ uh, to those around them. So uh, there's much to be encouraged by, uh, but I saw our core value of, of helping each other, of of being a blessing to each other lived out this week and wanted to celebrate that um, and share that with you. We're continuing our series titled Better Than Ever. It's a series based in the book of Hebrews, and it's focusing on how Jesus was and is better than anything that came before him. And uh, that's been our focus. Uh, The covenant that he initiated was better than the old covenant. Uh, It's better than ever. The new covenant is a better covenant with better promises. And it's between God and us and all of us, not just the nation of Israel. So last week we looked specifically at how Jesus is better than angels. And this idea that angels, though above humanity, um, are still a created thing. And uh, Jesus is the uncreated one, the only begotten of God. He was here, and the angels were created in him and through him like everything else, and for him like everything else. So Jesus is a better messenger with a better message. And there goes my name tag. I'm Mark, so I'm not going to fight that. Um, Today we're going to be looking at how Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Moses will be in Hebrews chapter 3. But Moses isn't as big a deal to you most likely as Moses was a big deal to the Hebrew people, to the the Jewish people that Jesus uh, came to bring into the family of God uh, in the new covenant that he came to establish. Moses was the initiator of the old covenant, so Moses was a really big deal to the Hebrew people, and the book of Hebrews is addressed to the Hebrew people. Uh, If you look at the Gospels, and you look at Matthew and Mark, where Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's two other people there. Do you remember who the two other people are? Moses is one of them, and Elijah is the second. And interestingly enough, Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. And so when you hear these references in the New Testament to the law and the prophets, that's essentially the Old Testament. And Moses brought the law. In Exodus, he went up on the mountain. He received it from God. He came down and taught it to the, to the people of Israel. The entire book of Deuteronomy is Moses' commencement address, his farewell address as they're leaving the the wilderness and moving into the promised land. And so Moses was a really, really big deal. And Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, which Jesus came to fulfill. Remember he says in Matthew five seventeen, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus is that fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And interestingly enough, when you think about Moses and Jesus, there's a lot of parallels. In fact, some scholars have said that, that Moses foreshadows many things that Christ came to do. And so scholars have pointed out lists, I've seen lists as many as, as 70 or 80 parallels between Moses and Jesus. A few that, uh, that I think are particularly significant is that both were born when Israel, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, were under foreign rule. 
And so when Moses was born, the people of Israel, the people that came down from the lineage of Jacob, who's also known as Israel, named Israel in, in Scripture, they were in Egypt, and they were under the rule of Pharaoh. When Jesus was born, the Romans had occupied Israel, and they were subject to the Roman Empire. Both also survived an, an infanticide, where when all the children were being killed, we see this happen in the birth of Christ, all the boys in Bethlehem being being wiped out. We also know that Moses was born at a time when Pharaoh was killing all the boys, and yet these both miraculously survived by the hand of God, the providential will of God. Both came out of Egypt to begin their ministry and their mission. Both were led uh, by God to lead God's people out of slavery. Moses led them out of slavery to the nation of Egypt. Jesus led people out of slavery to sin. And delivered them from death, whereas Moses delivered them into the promised land. Jesus delivers us into the kingdom of God. And finally, both Moses and Jesus brought a new covenant to God's people in the time that they were on earth. So a lot of similarities between Moses and Jesus, and yet there can be no doubt whatsoever that Jesus is better than, superior to, greater than Moses. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is on page 1864. If you have one of the dark blue pew Bibles on the seat in front of you, you can grab one of those. And I'll read uh, from, that, uh, from that chapter. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So let's walk back through this and make sure we understand what's going on. In verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, uh, the people of God, essentially, if you're a part of the family of God, those of you who share in the heavenly calling. Well, this heavenly calling is that calling to which uh, we have answered if we are in God's family. It's that calling to come into the order of authority of heaven. So it's the invitation of God to come and be a part of his family. And the kingdom of heaven then becomes the, the place where God's will is done. So you're in God's kingdom if you have come into his family through faith in Jesus Christ, and if your life is a place where God's will is done or is increasingly being done. Remember, Jesus taught the disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not just when we die, but here while we are alive, here while we are on earth and have the opportunity to influence things for your purposes. So he's addressing his brothers and sisters in Christ who share in the heavenly calling to fix their thoughts on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith, as he'll refer to him later. Fixing their thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. So if we confess Christ, then we are brothers and sisters in God's family, and we have received the heavenly invitation, the, the invitation to become a part of God's family and to start doing things here on earth as they are being done 
in heaven. So that's verse 1. Then verse 3 is really important that, that we see this, this word picture that's sort of given, that Christ is worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder is worthy of greater honor than the house. It's essentially saying the creator, the builder, is worthy of greater honor or greater worship or greater um, renown than the thing that was created. We talked about this a little bit last week because we humans, we have this this tendency and it's part of our sin nature. It's rooted in our sin nature to worship created things rather than the creator who created them. And so the writer of Hebrews is calling us back to this, this differentiation between worshiping the created and worshiping the creator that created it. And it's interesting, if you look in verse 3, you see the word honor twice. And it's a little bit of a frustration that I have with the New International Version on this verse because it's two separate words that are both translated as honor, but they have different meanings. And so the first time that you see the word honor there, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. It's the Greek word doxes, and it means glory, honor, or praise. It's essentially saying Jesus is worthy of being held in higher regard than Moses. The second time that you see that, he says, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself, it's the Greek word timen, timen, and it means value, price, or worth. So you see there's a difference. It's, it's that the, the builder is of worthy of greater regard, but also is of greater value than the thing that is created. And it's important that we understand that because Jesus is, is better than in both ways. He's worthy of higher regard, but he's also of greater value, of greater value, because any honor that the created thing has automatically has to flow back up to the creator who created it, just like the work of art that you might be considering. Imagine a, a masterpiece. We used to, we've seen the luncheon of the boating party, if you're familiar with that, Renoir, and uh, it's this massive scale masterpiece, priceless piece of art. And it would be ridic- you know, ridiculous to look at that and think that that is greater than the person who created it. And, and so the author of Hebrews is making the same point here, that we hold Christ in higher regard because he's the creator, and Moses was a created. Then if we look at verses 5 and 6, we really drive this point home. Verse 5 says, Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So basically, and this is our bottom line today, Jesus is as much superior to Moses as a son is superior to a servant. That's the point that the author of Hebrews is making here. This servant, Moses, that the Hebrew people hold in the highest regard is still a servant in the house of God. Jesus is the son. The sons receive the inheritance. The sons have title. The sons have dominion. The sons have authority. The servants serve the owners. Is this starting to make sense? I see some, some kind of looks that make me a little nervous that maybe we're not getting this. Are we starting to get this? If yes, do this. If no, do this. Okay, I see more of this than this, okay, which is good, but I want to make sure you understand this because it's kind of a really big deal because Moses was an extremely faithful servant, and that's why he was held in such high regard by the Hebrew people. 
But there's no comparison between the servant and the son. Jesus is the son. Now, this really gets interesting when you see that the covenant that Moses initiated was a covenant to servanthood. To servanthood, right? It made people servants of God. We talked about this in week one, that the first covenant was an I will if you will, conditional covenant. God says, as long as you do this and this and this, I will do this and this and this. If you don't do that, I'm not doing this. It's a conditional covenant. It's a covenant of servitude, or there's a higher power and a lower power, and the lower power does certain things in order to gain the blessing and protection of the higher power. Jesus comes and initiates a new covenant that's an unconditional covenant of love and grace, and it's a covenant that invites us into the family of God, into the rights of sons and daughters of the one true king. So it doesn't make us servants only, but sons and daughters, and this is really good news. And it's not just something that the writer of Hebrews stumbled upon or or spoke into being. We see this in John's gospel. We see it in the letters of John. We see it in the letters of Paul. So in John 1.12, he says, yet to all who received him, who received Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. And then in 1 John 3.1, he's writing this letter. And it's like in the beginning of chapter 3, it's almost this outburst where he's overwhelmed with emotion. And and he says, and we see these exclamation marks. He says, oh, how great the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. If we are in Christ, if we have accepted his gift of salvation, then we are children of God, not servants only, but we receive the rights of sons. Paul talks about this in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. He says, when the, the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, and that we might receive the full rights of sons and daughters. They added the inclusive language in the 2010 version. We've got the 1984 version, but it's essentially saying we are children of God. We are heirs of God. We are partakers of God. Romans 8, 14 and 15, Paul also addresses this. He says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. It's secure. You're, you're in God's family. You're in God's. He looks at you and he sees Christ in you. That's this idea that, that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us when we come to faith in Christ. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see a slave. He doesn't see a servant. He sees a child if we are in Christ. And this is really, really good news. Because this is where we find hope in the darkness. This is where we find hope when things get crazy in our lives. We find hope in our identity as a child of God. When we did the What's True About You series, the first truth that we focused on, and we were able to repeat it each week, is that you, if you are in Christ, you are a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells and delights. And this is good news. And all the other things that are true about you flow out of that identity that you have in Christ. And so when you lose your job or your basement floods or you have an unexpected loss, you don't find the same hope in the law that you find in the identity of a child of God, one in whom Christ dwells. This is really, 
really good news. And Paul really tried hard to help the Jewish people understand this. You see, he was born a Jew. He grew up in the Jewish culture. He was a Pharisee, which is the elite of the Jewish people. And when he receives his calling and he responds to it and begins to learn about it and goes to Antioch and, and gets commissioned by the church at Antioch to go on these missionary journeys. You can read all about this in Acts 9 through Route 13. I think chapter 10 is focused more on Peter. Uh, but Acts 13, they commission Paul and Barnabas to go out and to spread this good news. And we see a perfect example of Paul trying to help the Jewish people understand this in the second half of Acts chapter 13. So if you want to turn there next, you get to see Paul's first sermon, so to speak, to the Jewish people. And he's in the the temple or the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, which is kind of their first stop on this missionary journey. And he goes to the Jewish people there and he starts preaching a sermon. He starts with Moses, whom they hold in very high regard. And he moves from the migration from Egypt, uh, walks through Jewish history right up to David. And when he gets to David, he kind of veers over to Jesus at that point. And it's a brilliant approach. What, what, what Paul is doing is what we ought to learn to do. He establishes and finds the common ground that he has with his audience, and then he builds from that common ground into the good news that he wants to share with them. So he starts with Moses. He starts with the law. He starts uh, with all of that and moves all the way up to the person of David. And then David makes a, a natural transition into the person of Jesus. And he talks about Jesus' life, and he talks about his death, and he talks about the resurrection. And then we pick up in verse 32 of Acts 13. And he says this, We tell you the good news, the gospel. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. So now he goes back to the psalms, back to the Hebrew sacred text, back to the scriptures. And we've heard this psalm already in Hebrews. You are my son. Today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words. In quote Psalm 16, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Sorry, that's Isaiah 55, 3. Next is Psalm 16. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. So he's using the scriptures that they're familiar with to build a case for Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one of God that would come. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay, saying Jesus was the person that God was talking about in Psalm 16. It wasn't David because David decayed. Jesus didn't. He was raised from death to new life. Therefore, verse 38, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Are you tracking with Paul as he's preaching this sermon? He's basically saying in verses 32 and 33 that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets when he became the Son of God on earth. When Jesus was born by the virgin birth, the miraculous birth, he became the Son of God here on earth. He became the Son of Man 
because he was born of a woman and the son of God here on earth, the only begotten of God in all of creation. He was the only one who was begotten of God, who was of the same essence of God, who was of the same nature. Jesus is the uncreated one. All the other humans before and since were created by God. Jesus was begotten by God, is of the same essence of God. And he came to fulfill the promises of God, the promises that Moses talked about, the promises that Moses and the prophets made clear that God was going to do something great. Paul is saying, without any confusion, Jesus fulfilled all of those promises. All of those promises. Then he continues in verse 38 and 39. He says, Jesus didn't just fulfill the promises. Here's what that means to you. In verse 38, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's the first thing. The forgiveness of sins comes to us through Jesus Christ. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law. Of Moses. That's where the application really starts to make sense. Because forgiveness means to dismiss or to release or to pardon from sin. So the, the covenant that Moses brought was a covenant where you made a sacrifice or you did something, you did some act in order to receive forgiveness. And he's saying, no, now with Jesus, you accept Christ's payment for your sins, Christ's payment for your penalty, and you receive forgiveness for your sins through Christ, not through the law, not through the sacrifice. And then in verse 39, he takes it a step further because justification is different from forgiveness. Justification is to be declared or shown to be righteous, not just paying the penalty for the sin, but that we get to wear Christ's righteousness so that when God looks at me, he doesn't see me in the mess that I make of things. He sees Jesus standing behind me saying, this one's mine, God. This one's mine. And that's the invitation. That's the invitation to every one of us to, to come into the new covenant, to come and live our lives in the liberty and the freedom of the new covenant. And that is the gospel. That is the good news. And that was good news then to the Hebrew audience, to the Hebrews in Pisidian Antioch over 2,000 years ago. It was good news to the Hebrews that were reading the letter of Hebrews, and it's good news to us today. It's good news to us who maybe grew up in a more of a fundamentalist or more of a legalistic expression of Christianity that says you have to do this and do this and do this in order to get this blessing of God. That's religion. Religion says do more, try harder, do more, try harder, do more, try harder, but Christianity is a relationship. Christianity is an unconditional covenant that we come into through faith in Jesus Christ. And we say he paid the penalty for our sins. And out of gratitude for that, we give our lives to him. And we live holy and righteous lives before him as a witness to the love that we have for him. As a witness to the world that there is a God who loves them and who gave his life for them. This is unique about Christianity. Christianity is not a religion. Religion says do more, do try harder, do more, try harder. Christianity says it's done. It was done for you on the cross. Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid the penalty. And this is good news. And you might be thinking, yeah, we get it, Pastor Mark, <laughs> but I'm not sure we do. I'm not sure 
most of us do anyway, and I'm not sure most of them do. In fact, I'm quite sure that most of the people out there do not understand this. Because you ask the average person who's not in church on a Sunday morning why they're not in church on Sunday morning, and they'll tell you they're a bunch of hypocrites. It's a bunch of rules and regulations. It's a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's a bunch of do more, try harder, do more, try harder. That's what the world thinks of, by and large, when they think of what's going on in here. But Jesus died for us to live the full and the rich and the abundant life. It wasn't for us to get into this trap of do more and try harder, do more and try harder. It was to get into the relationship that empowers us to live for him and to live free from sin and to live lives that worship him with everything that we do. Because so much of the world out there resists everything that is happening in here because they don't understand it. Because they've been told they don't belong here until they do more and try harder and do more and try harder. And if you mess up, you're out. And that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel that Jesus came. Jesus came with one rule, a new command I give you, love one another. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. Now, there's all kinds of ways that that gets fleshed out, but they are not the law. The law is done. The law is over. Listen to the first message in the series if you missed it, because it's really important that you understand that the law is not bad. The law is in no way diminished, but something better has come. Something better has come in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we start this relationship through faith, the Holy Spirit comes into us, and the Holy Spirit empowers us to live holy and righteous lives. And as we give ourselves to that, and as we diminish so that it might increase, as we allow our flesh to diminish and we crucify the flesh, like Paul talks about in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a life pursuing holiness. That's a life that's pursuing alignment with God and his will and his ways so that we can be good news to the world around us, so that we can go out and love the world around us, so that we can welcome them in, give them a place to belong, and help them grow in their faith in Christ so that they can live for him, not for themselves. It's that invitation into the new covenant. Because Jesus is as much better than Moses as a son is better than or superior to a servant. He calls us into sonship. He calls us to be sons and daughters of God here on earth and to be busy reconciling the world to him. Once we've been reconciled, our job is to go find someone else and help them be reconciled. And that's the good news. And so I wonder, what if we started making it our focus to look more like Jesus and less like Moses? What if we were intentional? What if we woke up each day and said, how can I look more like Jesus and less like Moses to the world around me? The world that sees Christianity and sees the church as do's and don'ts, as rules and regulations, as judgment and condemnation. What if we were intentional about setting the law aside, letting God be the judge, and focusing on loving people, really actively loving people, modeling Christ's one commandment instead of focusing on the ten and the 600 that followed from that. We focus on that one commandment. When we get that one perfectly, 
then we can move on, right? When we get that one commandment to love others as Christ loved us, as Christ who died on a cross for us, when we love others like that, then we can maybe move on to the others. What if we focused on being fishers, casting a wide net, drawing people into the kingdom of God instead of cleaning up the fish? Let's let God do that. Let's focus on being the good news to the world around us because Jesus came that we would be sons and daughters and that the people you know would be sons and daughters as well. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for the good news. We thank you for the new covenant in Christ's blood. We thank you for the opportunity to come into your family to receive a rich inheritance from you, Lord, to spend eternity with you not cast far from your presence, but invited into your presence forever. And God, we think of those we know who have never heard the good news, who have never understood the invitation that's available to them, who have never understood what Christ came to do for them. And so we pray, God, that you will work in us and you will work through us to invite many others into the family of God. And Lord, if there's one here today who's heard something new, who came in reluctantly, thinking, I just don't want to hear any more rules and regulations, who recognizes their need of a Savior and is ready to accept the gift of salvation that is offered through Jesus Christ, then Lord, for that one, we pray especially that they will simply accept the gift that they will receive salvation and that they will begin that relationship with you. It's as simple as confessing your need of a Savior, professing your faith in Jesus Christ, and asking him to come into your life and take up residence. Help us, Lord, to be a people who respond in faith to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.